Good morning and welcome to Christ Community Church. I'm Casey Cease. I am the pastor of Preaching and Vision here, and it's my joy to be with you this Sunday before the 4th of July. Um, typically, there's a joke amongst pastors that the Sunday before the 4th of July and the Sunday after Thanksgiving is for the youth pastor, um, but currently I am the youth pastor, so I got to draw the short stick and uh, am excited. No, I'm, I'm honored to preach. I love preaching, and I love you, church, and so if you have your Bible with you or a Bible nearby, grab one and open with me to First Peter. We're continuing our letter um, from the Apostle Peter to the church in Asia Minor, who is facing uh, various forms of persecution and enduring suffering. Suffering, and through this suffering, they are getting a glimpse and a vision of the future hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Last week, the main point at the beginning of 1 Peter 1 was God is sovereign over salvation through suffering. That, that salvation isn't a removal from suffering, but through the suffering of Jesus Christ, the victory of Jesus Christ, He gives us the power and the privilege and the opportunity to suffer well, to lean into persecution rather than run from it. And we talked about how in our culture out here, most of our life and our resources resources are spent pursuing comfort and avoiding pain. And so what Peter gives this vision for is because there is this extremely valuable imperishable reward that we have in Christ Jesus, having focus on that gives us the ability to persevere and suffer well. This week, the main point I want you to focus on as we go through the remainder of chapter one is that God is calling his church to holiness through obeying Jesus and loving one another. He is calling us to holiness through obeying Jesus and loving one another. Holiness removed from Jesus is really idolatry and false worship. Holiness removed from Jesus is really idolatry and self-worship because holiness that isn't rooted and founded and owned in a relationship with Christ is really just behaviorism. It's outward behavioral changes in order to make ourselves appear more right than we are. The holiness that God is teaching us through His Word and through the person of Jesus is a dependence on Christ who is our holiness. And from that, we're then able to live a set-apart life. To be holy is literally to be set apart, to be other, to live an other life. And so God is calling His church, His bride to holiness through and by obeying Jesus and loving one another. So pick up with me in verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, and we always have to ask, what is therefore there for? Therefore, this suffering, this kingdom, this glory is our imperishable hope in Christ. And because we have this hope in Christ, we're then able to endure and live in such a way. If God then saves us by His sovereign good pleasure, then how should we live in response? Who are we called to be? What is the realignment of that relationship? When I got married to Stephanie, things changed. When I got engaged to Stephanie, things changed. When I started going with Stephanie, whatever that means, things changed. A realignment and changing of relational dynamics brings changes. When I started going with Stephanie, my Friendships with other girls adapted a bit. I still had girls who were friends. 
But when I got engaged to Stephanie to be my wife, those relationships began shifting. My dynamics with my mom and my dad began to mature and change because as I entered into covenant with my wife, my relationship with God and then with her was primary over all other relationships. And it changed the way I viewed my life. It changed the way I made decisions. It changed the way I spent my time. It changed the way I spent my money. I realigned my life due to the covenant I was in. And so when we're talking about holiness, and we're talking about living a holy life in view of who God is, it's a reorientation of that relationship in view of the future promise and hope that we have in Jesus. So therefore, because of the promises, because of what God has accomplished and will accomplish in Christ, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Peter is quoting from Leviticus 19, Be holy, because I am holy, in continuity with the invitation and proclamation of God to live a life that is other, is set apart. In this understanding, Peter gives this idea of, hey, we want to reorient our minds, and the way we live is alert, and fully sober, right? Your heads aren't just in the clouds, hopeful for one day, unaware of your suffering, not enduring pain uh, in a way that is just downplaying it, but embracing it with hope. There's an undercurrent in the midst of this message to those who are suffering, suffering an ongoing, persevering, eternal hope. I was sitting with someone this week who's going through a very hard circumstance in their life. And this person was just breaking down. And as a grown man, he was sobbing. He says, I know I have to be emotionally strong. I know I have to be emotionally strong. I know I have to have it together. And I said, no, slow down. You're human. This is an appropriate response to your circumstance. You're in a very tough circumstance. It's stressful. It's overwhelming. This is appropriate. However, the lens and the view you have going through this moment of just feeling overwhelmed, feeling crushed by your circumstances must have a view on the future hope we have in Christ. That's why if you've ever gone through a season of grieving and I've walked with you, I tell you, Christians are called to grieve and go through that process. We're just called to do so in a much cleaner way. It's this view, in view of who we are, being fully alert and fully sober-minded, clear thinking. Why? Because we set our hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed as His coming. We have a future inheritance and a promise that has been kept. So when he says set your hope, it's a reorientation, a change in your focus, and a change in your priorities. I, I ask this often, especially to moms and dads. What is the gospel that your life is preaching at home? Your life, not your words. I'm not saying when you church it up and tell kids to be more Christian-like. What is the hope your life is preaching? To be honest, sometimes in our home, our gospel we're preaching is said that hope and salvation and peace is found on our screens because of how frequently we're on it at times. 
And Stephanie and I have to hold each other accountable. We have to mention, hey, we're going to have some time with no screens because our actions and our words often say that, you know, Christ is king. But if, I, if I'm honest, and maybe some of you can relate, there are seasons where my cell phone is much like a cigarette for a chain smoker. I have to look. I have to look. I have to look. How many likes? How many comments? How many hearts? Hearts are great. Thumb, okay. A heart is like you took a moment. But I start hoping in those... My, my, I mean, really, let, I'm just being vulnerable with you. I go through seasons where the level to which I feel okay is the level to which I collect thumbs and hearts. I'm not currently in that season, but I probably will be again. Is our hope in the kind of house we have, the kind of car we drive, the, the grades our kids get, the appearance of having it all together outside of our home? Because this holiness, this sober-mindedness is a reorientation because of the promises we have. It shifts our focus. It shifts the focus of our work. We are working to earn a living that we might be a conduit of blessing to the world around us if we're kingdom dwellers. The world says, work to gain and to keep and to collect and to hoard and to enjoy, period. The mindset, the refocus of our work as followers of Jesus are to take the world by its dominion to bring about the grace of Christ through common grace and through applied grace, even through our work. I hear business guys all the time who are Christian delineate and say, well, no, but that's just business. So basically what they're saying is I can act crooked in business because that's business. Like business is another world. Like as Christians, no, we have to act, act this way and have integrity, but that's business. Hey, if you're a Christian, then your faith influences your business and your work and your spending and your time and your marriage and your parenting and your neighboring and your driving. That's why we don't have bumper stickers for the church. I see y'all drive. I've been flipped off several times from a certain church out here. I told their pastor, I'm friends with them. I'm like, you've got some angry people at your church. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I saw the bumper sticker. He's like, we gave those out a couple years ago. That's why we don't do that. I'll give you another church's bumper sticker. <laughs> I'm kidding, I won't do that. And not all of you are horrible drivers. Just some. But this reorientation comes, he says, as obedient children. There is a profound father hunger in our nation right now. Profound. Where, especially for men, and for women as well, but, but for men, there's this disorientation of not knowing which way to go and, and feeling kind of unwanted or kind of a burden. And with this... With this Father hunger, we're seeing a lot of people with a lot of confusion. Where dad may have been present but not engaged, and if dad has been present but not engaged, there's something that I believe the divine one has called us to, as dads, put into our children that hasn't been done. And so when we look at the world, it's interesting, we look at the world and how crazy it's become, yet we want to point to politicians and not the family. Or we want to point to the church 
who gets your kid maybe an hour and 15 a week and not the family. And so this reorientation of as obedient children, men, I want you to know if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not fatherless. You have a father in heaven who is perfect. If you had a severe father or an absent father or a dad that just was wrong to you, the beautiful thing is we can look at those things in our own fathers and even the failures in us. And we can see that our perfect and good Father in heaven is opposite of those things. While our earthly Father might be absent, our godly Father in heaven is present. If our worldly Father fails us, our heavenly Father perseveres. If our earthly Father leaves us out on our own, our heavenly Father gives His only Son so that we can be adopted in. We must not wander around men and women like fatherless beings. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt when dads have failed, but I'm a dad, and guess what? I fail. And so do you, dads. And guess what? So do you, moms. And so unless your call and invitation to your kids is imitate me as I imitate Christ, and unless you're willing to admit when you're not imitating Christ, so that your kids don't have this disorientation, we're going to continually see the perpetuation of the curse of fatherlessness in our nation and within the church. It's by having a heavenly father that we can then become fathers to the fatherless. And until we begin to understand that we have then had a new relationship formed with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. If you're wondering, is, is he primarily writing to Jewish readers or to non-Jewish readers? This verse is an argument that he is writing to non-Jewish Gentile churches, people that were non-Jewish that became a part of God's covenant through Jesus Christ. You were living once in ignorance. You had no grid on how to live, but now you are followers of Jesus. You have now for us the Word of God. We then have a grid by how we should then live. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Disobedient children, be holy. Why? Because you have a new relationship. The Bible says before we knew Christ, we were actually enemies of God. We were created by God, therefore we were God's creation, but in rebellion against God, we lived as enemies of God, so God did what we could not do through His own Son, Jesus, through His life, His death, His resurrection, and the hope of His future return, that we have been called sons and daughters. We have been given new identity and a new relationship. That relationship brings about identity, that identity then gives us a refocusing of our lives. So I want to make this point. A holy life is found through knowing and following the Holy One. A holy life is found through knowing and following the Holy One. That's, that's the beginning to get there. I used to get so frustrated when I first started speaking at youth camps. Because there's, there's a formula to youth camps. I'm actually preaching at one the week after next. And I go in and I, I blow the mystery the first night. Because typically, a man-made experience at youth camp goes something like this first night speaker gets up tells some jokes really lighthearted. maybe opens the bible makes the kids like him or her because they're very insecure 
And just a side note, if you're like 40 and you really need the affections of a 16-year-old that's not your child, that's weird. The second night, you kind of bring all the guilt and shame for all the sins that they've done, the music they listen to, all the things they've watched, all the things they've done on Snapchat, and you sound ignorant about the social media things because you're kind of out of touch as a speaker, and you go through that thing, you bring heap on guilt and guilt and guilt, and everybody comes forward and cries, and not really sure why they're crying. Then Wednesday night, they've been hopped up on sugar for the last two and a half days. They haven't slept much because they've been pranking each other, so they come in all strung out. And that's when you get them to make commitments that they haven't really thought through. And you ask a 14-year-old to commit to a life of vocational ministry at camp. And so some of the kids are burning their CDs or iPods or iPhones or whatever because they just, they're going to chop off the arm that causes them to sin. Some are breaking up their boyfriends and girlfriends. Some of them are making out with their boyfriends and girlfriends. They make all these promises that 48 hours later they will not be keeping. And many of you, that's kind of your, kind of your spiritual journey early on. A roller coaster. And it's been, it's been, do better, act better, make God right with you. Make yourself right, go get right with... Stop! If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been made holy. You have been set apart as aliens and strangers because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ and your hope in Him. So holiness isn't a separation of going and trying harder on your own. Holiness is coming after Christ and it's found through knowing and following the Holy One. Imitating Christ. Loving Christ. Following Christ. Valuing what He values over what the world values. That only comes by spending time with Christ. We are called to be holy, set apart, different. And the primary way that difference occurs is by knowing and trusting that we have access to the eternal, all-powerful Father in heaven through His Son, granted the gift of His Holy Spirit for His glory and our joy. I want us to pursue holiness, but the true holiness that is found is through the Holy One. And as we get near Him and know Him and think like Him and want what He wants, our lives start experiencing that power. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the la these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. One thing Stephanie said last week, I was saying, hey, so give me some feedback on the sermon. She's like, Peter is wordy. If you read through 1 Peter, it's like he uses lots of words to say what he wants to say. Gospel of Mark, concise. Peter, words. Lots of words. So let's dig into this a little bit and enjoy it a little bit further. 
There is a Father in heaven who does judge deeds. He does so impartially. He is the standard, not your neighbor, just to give you, just to give you some help. The standard of justice and the standard of judgment isn't based upon, well, I'm not as bad as that guy or as bad as that girl. That's irrelevant to the Lord. God's standard of holiness is His standard. Him. You fall short. That's why you need Christ. And so when we start, stop looking around and comparing our family or our marriage or our home or our devotions or our preaching or our church plant or stop comparing and start refocusing on the source and the standard, it should reorient it. I love this. As you live out your time as foreigners, I don't know about this, but unless you're indigenous American, Native American, we are all from foreign families. Here in America. And you're like, no, America. America. You have your own. This is my country. But what God says, when you reorient your relationship with God, you then have a new identity as a follower of Christ, and therefore you live as those who understand that long-term, this is not our home. And what scares me in the evangelical church is oftentimes we are Republican, Christian, whatever. No, friends. You are Christ's. If He purchased you, you are first Christ's. Any other affiliation or affinity before Christ is idolatry. You can be a Christian who votes Republican or Democrat or Independent or Libertarian or whatever else is out there. But we have to reorient ourselves understanding that ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we have an eternal hope. Therefore, this is not our home. As you live out your time as foreigners here in, what does he say? Reverent fear. When I was about nine years old, ten years old, we lived in a place called Aleaf in southwest Houston. That's a place that you usually drive through with your windows up and your doors locked. It's the hood. And my white next-door neighbor, and I'm just being clear that he was a white dude, was on crack, lost his mind, started shooting his gun outside, and was holding his wife hostage in the front yard. I didn't know it at the time because my father, a Vietnam vet, had us hunkered down in the back of our house, he had his 38 revolver out. Sounds like this guy had like a semi-automatic, my dad with his five-shooter. We saw SWAT guys all back and everything else. We were terrified. This type of terror, though, is not what the Bible's teaching. The reverent fear is an understanding of authority, but it's more like a parent who loves their child. Abigail, we call her Abigail Stinkerpants. She's almost six, so I'll probably have to quit calling her that publicly shortly. Right now, she just owns that name. I can tell Abigail, I'm like, Abigail, come here. Starts weeping and repenting. At times, she's not even sure like, what she did wrong, so she starts telling me the list. I was unkind to sissy. I did this. I'm like, well, you're in trouble for all that too, but I just wanted you to come here. You weren't listening. The reason why she does that is not because she has a holy terror because we whoop her all the time, but it's we have a standard of respect that there's a time to play and a time to obey. And in that obedience, if she doesn't obey, there are consequences because we love her. And so when it talks about the fear of the Lord, the terror of God, it's, it's merely you have to think of it this way. He can destroy you, 
And if you don't believe me, then look at Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They made a promise that they gave all that they said they were going to give. They didn't. He killed them. Can you imagine the carnage here when we pass the basket? Oh, this is absolutely 10%. Uh, right? I mean, we totally filled the seats. But he doesn't. He comes as his children and refocuses us. He comes and realigns us and we can be obedient and endure and persevere because we can trust that he is a good father that keeps his promises, that will do all that he has set out to do. We were not saved or called or maintained by things that go away, even gold and silver, but instead... We were redeemed out of that empty life that we formerly lived by the precious blood of Christ who is the perfect sacrifice. Your good deeds are not an unblemished lamb of Christ. Your money is not what purifies you before God. Your church attendance is not what saves you. The only hope we have for salvation is found in Christ. And what can we learn of Christ here? He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Unfortunately, some people have a theology that says that Christ was an afterthought. In fact, that's one of the major objections of Jewish people, that maybe Jesus was necessary for Gentiles, but in fact, the Scripture teaches that Jesus came for the Jew first and then the Gentiles. Jesus isn't just the non-Jewish God. Jesus was a Jewish man who is the God of all. And so with that in mind, the promise we have for the forgiveness of our sin is eternal and lasting. But He was always a part of God's plan. That God's plan has not been thwarted by your sin or mine, but God's plan has ultimately been culminated and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus is not an afterthought. He is eternal and always a part of the plan. Verse 21, Through Him, You believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, so your faith and your hope are in God. Your faith in God is not absent from the faith in Jesus. If you're here and you say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus, then you do not believe in the real living God. The only way for us to have hope in God is through the promise of Jesus. There is no hope and belief in God if there's no belief in Jesus. So when we talk to people, I'm like, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the true God. Their understanding is limited, and they cannot have access to God except through Christ. Jesus has always been the plan. So number two, the fear of God produces faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it's the Spirit of God that gives us faith, but the response of understanding who God is evokes this trust in Him. The fear of God shouldn't push us away from faith. It should draw us near to it. Because having a reverent reverent trust in a holy God to keep His promises that is engaged with time and space through His Son, Jesus, gives us a lasting and eternal hope that we can cling to in the midst of suffering and persecution. So this fear of God is an understanding that God is God and you are not. It's an undoing of yourself before a holy God knowing that you are not holy. Is he 
the freedom of realizing that on your best day, you do not match the standard that God requires. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. He's quoting Isaiah the prophet, saying that our purification, our being made holy, has a response and a result that goes beyond ourselves, but then enables us and empowers us to truly love one another. The first thing we saw is that a holy life is found through knowing and following the Holy One. And then we just talked about the fear of God produces faith and hope in Jesus Christ. The third thing I, I want us to point out here is that our love for each other is founded in the transformational love of Jesus. If you're struggling to love someone that's hard to love, I would challenge your theology and say you have to have a better theology of who God is and how He loves us. The source of love isn't found in yourself to feel love. In fact, a lot of marriages crumble because a spouse stops feeling like they love their spouse. But in fact, the word love in the New Testament is a verb, an, an active word that is proactive. I mean, many of the lives I know that are kind of a wreck, the reason why they're a wreck is because they wait for feeling to compel them to do what's right and true rather than obeying what is right and true and trusting in God to restore their feelings. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor and as a Christian, I've obediently sat down with the Word of God when I did not feel like spending time with God and reading the Word of God. And it was something in my soul was reminded of how much I enjoy the Lord. And it revived my spirit. I did not feel like doing it. Now you might say, well, Casey, you were just being legalistic. False. Legalism is an activity done to earn or sustain salvation. Obedience is an action based upon trust of the promises and character of God. Obedience is an action based upon trust of the character of God. And so when we love another person in the faith who is difficult to love, we are doing so not based upon emotion, but in response to the love shown to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And so God's proactive work on the cross wasn't for worthy people but for dead sinners. God leads out and empowers us to live into obedience and love the way that God has loved us. That's where you'll find the strength. That's where you'll find the strength to persevere with another brother or sister in the faith. That's where you'll find the strength to persevere in your marriage. That's where you'll find your strength to endure with your children when they're living disobediently to God. 
That is the hope and the source of strength that we have. This concept, this declaration of love, love means blind acceptance of all that I agree with and affirmation of everything I want you to affirm. If that's love, that's not biblical love. In fact, to love something and affirm something that harms a person is not love at all, but hatred. This type of love that he's talking about here is this love that is founded because of the transformational love of Jesus. We have been purified so that we can love one another well. Love is proactive when we're caring for each other when we have a need. Love is confronting each other when when we are in sin with the aim of restoration. I've been confronted by people before, and their aim was not to restore me, but to prove that they were right and I was wrong. At the end of the day, that's still mercy. But I've also had people come alongside of me and say, hey, you're missing the Lord here. Hey, you need to slow down here. Or man, you need to take a break here. And it's been grace. And founded on trust, the foundation of trust. Loving each other is encouraging each other and carrying each other's burdens. And what's crazy to me in our culture, and I would even say in our church, is the rampant nature of loneliness that we experience. I mean, we are more socially active online than we've ever been before, yet we're lonelier than we've ever been before. I, was, I talk to people from the church all the time. That, and they're like, man, I just feel lonely. I feel isolated. I don't feel like my community group's caring for us. I don't feel this, this, this. And I'm like, have you spoken to anyone else about it? Because what it feels like is that you all are expecting Stephanie and I to make sure all 100 plus of you don't feel lonely. As much as we would love to do that, we can't. And we shouldn't. But the problem is, is a lot of times we haven't gone to the place of trust of saying, other people, we feel lonely. I've had to say that before to the elders. I feel lonely in leadership right now. I've had to own it. Here's a couple ways to not respond to someone feeling lonely. What do you have to feel lonely about? Not a good response. Why are you so lonely? You have this, this, this. Not helpful. Wow, I'm really sorry that you're feeling that way. I hate that you feel lonely. I hear that you feel lonely. I don't want you to feel lonely. What are some things that help you to not feel lonely? That's a golden rule, friends. Do for others as you'd have them do for you. But we have families leave the church because they're lonely. We have people withdraw from serving because they're lonely. The love of Christ that we have been given empowers us to proactively engage each other. We're not each other's Savior. We're mutual tour guides pointing each other to the Savior. But at the same time, if you're feeling lonely, tell your community group leader. And community group leaders, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. All I'm asking you to say is, I want you to hear. I hear that you're feeling lonely right now. I'm really sorry that's how you feel. I had no idea. Thank you for sharing that with me. What are some ways that that you feel less lonely? For some people, it's just like an encouraging text. And I've had people say, I'm just not very good at that. Do you have an iPhone? There's a thing called a reminder. Set the reminder every Tuesday, recurring. Encourage Bobby. 
We've been called to love each other. And if we're not doing that well, then why would we call people out of their dysfunctional families into ours? In Christ, we've been given the opportunity and the blueprint and the power to obey Christ, love each other, to endure suffering, to persevere, to live set apart holy lives, hoping in the Holy One. That is our hope. That is our vision. That is our dream. When we talk about making disciples in authentic community, that's the aim. If you feel lonely, tell someone today. Because I know plenty of marriages I've coached and counseled, they just feel lonely in their marriage. Loneliness is a consequence of the fall. Because before the fall of mankind, we had God. After the fall, relationships were broken. Through Christ, relationships are being restored. It's in that hope we can confess and hope. Let's not do this alone, church. If we grow as a church, I want to grow the right way. Where people know that we are His disciples by the way we love one another. That we're not a clique, but we're welcoming. That our community group's willing to multiply, not for the sake of just splitting up, but because more people need a place to know Jesus and belong. That we want to see people who are far from God be reconnected with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we want to see our neighbors that are living in isolation live in isolation no longer. That when we see people who are walking in darkness be called and invited and restored in the light of Christ. We did not endeavor to plant this church to create a country club for believers. We planted Christ Community Church as a mission hub to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to identify our spiritual giftings, to lean into those giftings, and to make disciples. Because that's when life starts really happening. And work starts making sense. And struggles are no longer just your own struggles, but learning opportunities that you can share and encourage and counsel and coach other people through. This holiness, this otherness, isn't just about focusing on all the things that we're against but rather leaning into all the things we are for because God is calling His church to holiness through obeying Jesus and loving one another. That is the call of holiness, to follow the Holy One, to fear God, and, and that, that produces a, a trust in His person and character. And that our love for each other is founded and empowered by the trace, transformational love of Jesus so that we can obey God's calling as His church to this holiness that is rooted in obeying and loving one another. And that's not easy, and it takes time, and we're going to fail. And some of you who feel dropped through the cracks or alienated, I want you to know that from me and from your elders and from your church, we're so sorry, but we endeavor to make that better. There is one caveat that I have to say, that sometimes our loneliness is rooted in the fact that we're looking for a functional Savior. Our loneliness at times is rooted in the fact that we're looking for a functional Savior, meaning someone or something other than Jesus to rescue us. You will never find that in a person or a thing long term. I just want to balance that expectation that you can have great friends and meaningful relationships, but if you're not enjoying Jesus and spending time with Him, you can still feel very lonely, even though you have people who care for you. Church, I want to ask you, and I want to invite you, even though it's summertime, to press in with me because He is calling us to holiness through our obedience to Jesus and loving one another. Let's pray.